Jesus gave us a command that requires us to get out of our comfortable cultural huddle. Our Truth Encounter study leader was raised only 30 minutes from New York City, but in the middle of seminary, the Lord led him to start a church in a rural, redneck community in Texas. The popular bumper stickers in Texas at the time were, if you love the Big Apple so much, why don't you go home? Let's join Dave Wurtson as he talks to us about some even bigger cultural gaps Jesus wants us to fill. Those of you that are Texans, is it easier for you to talk to a fellow Texan, someone that has the same kind of dialect you have, the same kind of accent, wears kind of the same kind of clothes as you do? Is it easier for you to talk to them and just make a conversation with them or to talk to a New York Yankee. What's easier? It's easier, isn't it, to talk to a fellow Texan. In fact, how many of you, I'll have confession time, how many of you have ever met a New York Yankee as a Texan and then gotten together with other Texans and oh, those New Yorkers, man alive, I can't believe it. Well, I got news for you. The New Yorkers, you know what they do? They get together and they talk about us, okay? They talk about the way we act and the way we behave. It shows you the diversity of cultures. And I want you to start to think about what happens when you have different cultures that try to get together. It's much easier to connect like unlike, And that's important in your witnessing. As you're trying to reach out for people for Christ, we've been talking about mission into all the world. We've been talking about reaching people for Christ. One of the things that you need to realize is that it's easier for someone that's like someone else to talk to them about Jesus. And so what will happen, for example, in our church family, usually we'll have a growth among likes. Let me give you an example. Like if our teenagers in our youth group get together and they want to reach out to some young people and try to help them to find Christ, they'll reach out to a fellow middle class teenager and invite them to go to Six Flags. That's like unlike. Okay, one of our teenagers inviting another middle-class teenager to go to Six Flags. And, you know, there's several things that are assumed in that. Number one, if you ask someone to go to Six Flags, you assume they're in an economic bracket that's high enough that they'll be able to afford Six Flags. And it would be part of their culture to do that. So that's like unlike. Another example for you adults, for you business people, Judson is working with fellow pilots, fellow A&P guys, guys that work on airplanes and the power plants and what's going on in that aircraft. And Judson connects with other guys that are pilots and into flying, and he invites them to come just for a casual time of prayer that's like-unlike. And the Lord uses that. God can powerfully use that like-unlike kind of outreach. And what I would pray is that every single one of those little cell groups that are developing would have a heartbeat of thinking, how can we strategize to bring the gospel, to bring the story of Jesus into others that are in our group? How can we reach out to others within our particular group of influence? I want to talk to you not only about like-on-like evangelism, which is attractive, likes attract, but I also want to talk to you about opposites who repel. The Lord not only wants you to witness and share Christ with people that are like you, but he also wants you to get out of your cultural safety nets and he wants you to go to other people that are the opposite from you. What would be an example of this? Well, let's suppose that the Lord brought a redneck Ku Klux Klaner from Mississippi 
and they got converted, came to know Jesus as their Savior, came to know Christ in a personal way, the Lord brings them into a situation here in Dallas. They meet a big strapping black fella dressed to kill, kind of like a New Yorker, and he's a follower of Louis Farrakhan. Now, what is it going to be like for that born-again, former white supremacist who's trying to witness to a Louis Farrakhan follower? That's an extreme example of opposites repel. You say, well, Dave, we need to always do like upon like because that's not going to ever work. Well, it's true culturally and it's true the way people work that probably it's going to be very difficult for my Mississippi guy to reach the Farrakhan follower. But you know what? God might choose to do that. In fact, in the world today, there are 11,000 people groups. There are 11,000 people groups that have no chance... They have no chance of somebody like them reaching them with the gospel. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? There are 11,000 people in the world who are part of people groups, 11,000 people groups who have no indigenous church. They have no group of believers that know about Jesus' death, who know about his resurrection, who know he's coming back, who have the witness of scripture. There are 11,000 people groups that have nobody within their group that can tell them that story. And unless somebody goes from the outside, crosses that big chasm, they're not going to be reached. Let me give you an example of that. When you think of the land of Russia, for example, how many of you are the Soviet Union? When I was a kid, we learned about the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic, right? The USSR, the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic. And as a kid, when I thought of Russia, what did I think of? I thought of this great big land. How about you? And I thought of it being like the United States, you know, one nation, not under God, but one nation under communism. How many of you would say that that picture of Russia has proven to be a bunch of baloney? It's not true at all. It's very important. If I was speaking to Ukraine, how would it go over if I'm speaking to a bunch of Ukrainians about Slavic Russians? How's that going to go over? Not going to go over. You see, the Ukrainians, they're a separate people. Do you realize that in Russia itself, there are thousands of people groups that are uniquely separate groups of people who have different dress, different customs? Let me take you another one. China. If I were to say, Nicole, what is it? what's a Chinaman like? What are they like? What would you tell me? Just right off the top of your head, Chinaman. What's a Chinaman like? What language do they speak, first of all? Obviously, they speak Chinese. What do they look like, kind of? They have a little bit darker skin than ours, you know, than the Caucasian. What else would you think of? Their eyes would be a little bit different than ours. Okay, how many of you would agree with Nicole that's a Chinese? I would. You know what she just described? She described the dominant group in China, which are the Han Chinese, a group of people called the Hans, which goes into a whole genealogy of how the Hans developed. But do you know that within the Hans themselves that Nicole described, there's a hundred different languages among the Hans? Those hundred languages that are so different, they can't even understand each other. Like, you have a hard time understanding me as a New Yorker. But can you imagine living in a culture where right within this land of China, among your own major group of people, the Han Chinese, there's a hundred different languages where they can't even understand each other. So there's at least that many people groups. The Han Chinese is just one of the major groups. There are hundreds of other groups that we know as China that are totally different than the Hans that speak totally different languages than the Hans and totally different backgrounds, totally different genealogies and, and totally different nationalities behind them, okay? I want you just to think of not thinking in terms of nations. For example, if you think of a nation like Jordan, and if I were to say, well, this person's from Jordan, 
you would say, I know what they're like. And you think of them like you do an American. That means that, boy, they probably have a Declaration of Independence where they signed it. And probably all the people fought some kind of a war and they became Jordan, just like we're the United States. You know, that's not true at all. You know how Jordan came into existence? The British and the French divided up the whole Middle East. After World War I, when the British and the French won, they took the Middle East, which was the old Ottoman Empire, the old Islamic Empire centered in Turkey, that the caliphs controlled for many hundreds of years, and the British arbitrarily sat down with the French and just divided it up, and King Hussein's daddy was right in the middle of it, so King Hussein got this chunk called Jordan. Jordan never existed before. So if you talk about Jordan, what you're really talking about is some Moabites, some Edomites, a whole bunch of Palestinians that fled into Jordan during the Israeli-Palestinian wars and Arab wars, and King Hussein tries to hold this whole mishmash, this whole pot, this boiling pot of water, try to hold them together. What I want you to do is not think politically, but I want you to think culturally about when the Bible says, go into all the world and make disciples of every, we read in our Bibles, nation. But when we think of nations, we think of all of these countries. And that idea of country isn't even in the scripture. You see, the word there is a Greek word, ethnos. Thinking about the dictionary, ethnos, ethnic, see how that all goes together? It's like the Lord Jesus, when he gave that command to his disciples, knew that there would be all these divisions of people. And he challenged us to go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnic group, every people group, every one of these enclaves, okay? What I want you to realize is that unless somebody like us or another believer from another people group invades that people group and brings the gospel to them, there's 11,000 people groups that don't have a chance to hear. You say, well, Dave, how many people are there in those 11,000 people groups? Two and a half billion people. This morning there are two and a half billion people that unless somebody goes from the outside, they have no chance of having someone that's like them to communicate the gospel to them. And what we need to make our goal, what we need to begin to pray about, what we need to begin to ask the Lord are for some to leave our group to go to every one of those targeted 11,000 people groups with the goal of bringing them the gospel, getting to know their customs, getting to know the language, and so that they can present the truth about Jesus to them, and then to get an indigenous group of people so that that people can then be reached with like upon like. But it needs to begin in those groups with opposites, even opposites that repel. You say, well, Dave, if like attracts like, why has the Lord ordained for sometimes for people to go cross-culturally? Because God's very creative. God himself, the Lord Jesus himself, has given us a great example of this. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. Because whenever the Lord Jesus gives us a difficult command, the Lord Jesus gives us the example and the wherewithal to be able to do it. In John chapter 4... The Lord Jesus, in an incredible way, fulfills what I've been talking about, doing this kind of cross-people, cross-cultural evangelism. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You will be witnesses in Jerusalem. To the audience that Jesus was talking to, that was like-unlike attractive evangelism. Speaking to Judean Jews, he told them to go to the capital of Judea and for Jews to reach Jews. But what's the next statement? You shall be witnesses in Judea. What's the next statement? And in all Samaria. And there we made an incredible jump. Incredible jump. Because for a Jew to try to reach a Samaritan was like opposites repel. Let's look at it in John chapter 4. 
It says in verse 4 of John chapter 4, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about 12 noon, about the six hours. Jews begin their time at 6 o'clock in the morning, okay? Now, if Jews were going to make a trip, if a Jew was going to make a trip from Jerusalem up to Galilee, how would he go? Now, I want you to think about the map, okay? Think of the map of Israel. You've got the Mediterranean Sea out here. You've got Mount Hermon up here in the north. You have Lebanon over here. You come down off Mount Hermon. You have the headwaters of the Jordan. Then you have the Sea of Galilee. Then you come directly south through the Arabah, down through the Jordan River. You come to the Dead Sea. Now, if you move a little bit to the left, you have Judea. And Jerusalem's right in the heart of those mountains. You go a little bit to the north, you have the mountains of Samaria, and then you go a little bit farther north and you have Galilee. Now, as the crow flies, if you're sitting here in Jerusalem, what would be the normal way to get to Galilee? What would you do? As the crow flies, you would do what? Go straight north. That's right. You go straight north. Did Jews do that? You know what they would do? They would leave Jerusalem. And I made this trip. It's an agonizing trip. You drop 2,000 feet down to the desert. Go down to Jericho. And Jericho's nice. It's like an oasis. Palm trees and coconuts and grapefruit. But then you go across the Jordan River. You go climb up another 2,000 foot drop. You know, get up on the highlands of what we call Transjordan, which is modern day Jordan. You go all the way north on that highland, and then you cross over the Jordan River again into Galilee. Why in the world did a Judean Jew go all the way around like that instead of just walking straight north? Why did they hate the Samaritans? They were happy. You see, what happened to the Samaritans in 722, the kingdom of Assyria, a guy named Tiglath-Pileser, what a name. He came down with the Assyrian armies, conquered the whole northern area of Israel all the way down through the Samaritan mountains. And the Assyrians, like a lot of conquering empires, had a philosophy, when they conquered a land, they would take all the people that lived in one area, transplant them to another area. Not all of them, but a lot of the people. They would take other people from another part of their empire, and they would move them into that new area. Now, why would they do that? They felt if they did that, they could get political control of the area. So what happened in 722, they took a like the rump, like the, they took like the heart of Samaria, that area, they took all those Israelites and transplanted them and transplanted a bunch of Assyrians and, and Edomites, all kinds of different people into that area, Elamites even. And so what began to develop over the centuries was this half-breed group of partly Jewish, partly Assyrian, partly who knows what. So the Judeans, who are the purest down there around Jerusalem, what do you think they think about these Half-breeds, the same thing that happens. America knows a great deal about ethnic conflict and racial conflict. In fact, it's one of the biggest challenges that our nation's facing. Can we amalgamate? Can the United States continue to be this big mixing pot, or will the mixing pot blow up in a boil that everyone you know, rejects one another? This has been something that's going on for centuries. It happened in the first century. Jews, Samaritans, racially antagonistic. Can anybody tell me any other division between the Jews and the Samaritans? Racial conflict, ethnic conflict, religion. What the Samaritans believed is that you needed to worship God in Samaria. And the Jews obviously said you needed to worship God where? In Jerusalem. As you think back over your life, how many of you at family reunions have ever had the whole family reunion dissolve? And peace went right out the window because you got arguing about where we're going to worship, right? Same thing going on, only let me give you this. You know what? When Jesus sat down and talked to the woman of Samaria, 
the place of worship that the Samaritans had worshipped, guess what the Jews had done before this woman's time? They had come up from Jerusalem, come up through Judea, up into the Judean mountain. You know what they did? They burned down the whole Samaritan temple. Just burned to the ground. Can you imagine we come to church on Sunday morning and we find our whole church burned to the ground and we find out who did it? What kind of relationships do you think we're going to have with the people that burned our church to the ground? You talk about barriers. You know that sometimes cultural, historical barriers like I'm talking about between the Jews and the Samaritans are even bigger than language barriers. You see, the Jews and the, and the Samaritans would speak the same language. Jesus could probably talk to the woman in Italian, you know, in Old Latin. He probably could have talked to her in Greek, and he probably could have talked to her in Hebrew, and he probably could have talked to her in Aramaic, and probably all those languages. I don't know for sure, but probably all four of those languages would have worked because it was a very cosmopolitan area. So there's no language barrier between Jesus and the Samaritans. But boy, you talk about cultural barriers. Man, they are all over the place. Now, how do you respond to cultural barriers? Well, I'll tell you how I responded. I get with the people that are like me. How many of you ever traveled in a foreign country and you find another American who speaks like you and talks like you or somebody that's an English speaker? What do you do, man? You're like magnets. You get close to them and it's so good. In fact, Americans suddenly become really friendly. You just know everybody that's like you because we really don't like people that aren't like us. Jesus Christ wants us to think carefully about those divisions and he wants us to overcome them. Look what Jesus does. It says in verse 4 that, that he had to go through Samaria. And I love that phrase. You know what it's saying? It's saying that Jesus had a divine appointment in Samaria. See, Jesus didn't have to go to Samaria in order to get up to Galilee. He could have gone all the way around. But why did he have to walk through Samaria? Something that Jews hardly ever did. Because there was a woman that the Father in heaven had an appointment to touch. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us that before the foundations of the world, that the Lord was pulling this Samaritan woman in his heart towards himself. I want you to stop and think about your own heart. How many of you can think back and think of some incredible things that God brought together so that you would become a child of God? Anybody have that? If you think back over your life, think of the way that the Lord worked. Think back through your family history, some of you. The incredible way that God worked to bring you to the Savior. You know what? God wants you to become part of that story of redemption this week in someone else's life. You see, I believe that the Lord has, has appointments for us this week. A lot of you think, oh no, I don't want to have any part of that. And, and I'm guilty. And when I go to witness somebody, I just do it to get the, the monkey off my back. I don't want you to witness like that. I want you this morning to fall in love with Jesus. I want you to realize who Jesus is. And I want that news about him to become so good to you that it'll kind of be bubbling inside of you and you'll start to look at your daily life as opportunities to have divine appointments. Incredible the way that the Lord will work that way. It said the Lord said that Jesus must need, I love the King James, it says he must needs go through Samaria. And it's like the Lord is saying God had a divine appointment between his son and this woman at the well. Well, you know how the story develops. Let's look at what, what happened. It says, about the sixth hour, it was about 12 noon, it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, the very first thing I want you to understand, if you're going to get involved in what most of you aren't going to get involved in, to be honest with you, most of you aren't going to listen to what I say today. I know that. But there's a few of you they're going to get excited about what I'm talking about, and you're going to enter into a, a totally different kind of existence. 
Because you're going to start getting up in the morning and you're going to begin to think, I'm going to be part of God's redemptive plan today. And in, in very exciting ways, the Lord's going to start to work in my life to bring me in contact with other people. And in my work and in my goings and my sittings and all that I'm doing, I'm going to have opportunities to talk to people. And it's incredible the different people that the Lord brings us in contact with. And to be honest with you, I'm often not alert at all. For example, we just went out to eat with some friends to have sushi to celebrate a birthday. And there was a lady that was serving us. And I asked her, he said, where are you from? It turned out she was from Vietnam. And then we said where we were from. And somebody was from the Philippines and somebody else was from Texas. And I was from New Jersey and New York. We said, where are you from? She says, I'm from Vietnam, but I'm, I spent some time in Yonkers, New York. Now look at this combination. A Vietnamese girl that was from the East Coast in Yonkers, New York, that's serving a bunch of Texans in a Texas restaurant. But you know what? When someone's waiting on you, you don't even think about that, do you? I thought about it later that we made a little bit of connection, but it was like I just didn't think that much about it. And how many of you have ever had contacts like that? You hardly think at all about what's going on. And yet the Lord, as we go about in our lives, there's all these really interesting connections that the Lord wants us to make. One of our ladies that, that is a waitress in a restaurant. She said, Dave, I've got to tell you this. I'm working in a restaurant. The first couple of weeks, they made me work all Sunday. But I said, Lord, I'd get started. I'll go ahead and do it and try to get in with them. And she also started working with a bunch of younger kids that are really different. There's a girl there that has all kinds of earrings that punch through her nose and punch through a lot of other areas. These kids I'm working with are really different. When she first started working there, she said, Lord, what in the world have you gotten me here for? But as a result of what we've been talking about today, this idea that the Lord has divine appointments, and she started working this new place. She said, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going to waitress in this place. You got me here. Start to use me. And she said, Dave, you're not going to believe this. One after another, I've gotten really close friends. She started talking about all these girls that she's working with that have started coming to her, and they realize she's different. Like They'll come to her and say, you've been actually married for 18, 19 years? And you've never played around? Tell me about it. How in the world have you ever done that? I've never met anybody weird like that. And she's starting to have those inroads. You know what those are? Those are divine appointments. And that's what I want you to start to get caught up in in your daily life. It changes your whole existence. As we go through John chapter 4, I want to give you some keys to how you can help to go into those cross-cultural situations. And the first thing you need to do is take the initiative. Notice what Jesus said. It's, it's 12 o'clock noon, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? You know, I can think of a million one reasons why Jesus should not ask the Samaritan woman for a drink. You know what I would have said when I said at the well? Chris, I would have said, um, you know, I need to get on the phone, and I need to call one of the women in our church, because maybe she'll be able to connect with the Samaritan woman, because I'm a man. In fact, I'm a minister man. And if anybody of the people from Midlothian Bible Church find out that I'm having a tete-a-tete in the middle of the day, all by myself, in the middle of Samaria, with this woman, and later on we find out she had five husbands, can you imagine the talk through the Dallas-Fort Worth area if you find out that David met at Chili's with a divorcee that had been divorced five times? Man, that would be all over the years. I can't talk to her. Now, I want to communicate, we do need to exercise discretion, and I've given messages like this, and I've had like a 25-year-old man that goes out and says, my ministry is going to be to all the fallen women in the world. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the fact that it's so easy to come up with excuses for why we don't initiate conversation. And Jesus could have had a ton of them. Jewish men didn't talk to Jewish women. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. 
you know, it was, it, was, it was not a good time, not a religious time. It was a well time. It was water time. It wasn't time to talk about spiritual things. And Jesus blew right on all that. You're going to get into this flow of redemption, these moments of contact. You need to get up in the morning and say, Lord, help me to be willing to take initiative. And it begins as simple as this with, will you give me a drink? First of all, the Lord took initiative. But the second thing he did is he established common ground. You see, through the next several verses, the Lord starts with a common ground thing, and he uses this common ground thing to move from a physical discussion to a spiritual discussion. Look what it says. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? How did she know right away he was Jewish? If I came up to you and said, So what's the matter, Betty, huh? What's going on with you? What would you conclude about me? Well, you conclude a lot of things. Number one, I'm not from Texas. And that's how they knew. You see, as soon as Jesus opened his mouth, when he said, could I have a drink, as soon as he said that, it's just like when a Texan went on an airplane up in, in JFK in New York, and as soon as you open your mouth, the stewardess says to you, would you like something to drink? And the very first thing you say is, yes, I'd like some iced tea. And in New York, it goes, man, he's from Texas. Just like that. Just the way you say that and the fact that you asked for iced tea. It shows you how those cultures, the dialects just label us. And that's how the woman knew. And right away, notice she tries to get the conflict. Whenever you're trying to go cross-culture like this, instantaneously there will be conflict that develops. You know what I do? I chicken out when there's a conflict. But notice Jesus doesn't do that. She tries to say instantaneously, what are you talking with me for? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman. You're not supposed to talk to me. Notice Jesus goes right on, ignores her almost, with this racial kind of a slur, trying to get conflict. He says, listen, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is, this is verse 10, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him that he would have given you living water. What an incredible statement. First of all, there's a real twist in this. Because Jesus has just asked her for a drink of water. Now he turns the whole thing around and says, you know, you ought to be the one that's asking me for a drink. You ought to be reaching out to me. And that creates a great confidence in her mind. Now, how does this all work? You know, how in the world can this one that just asked me for a drink, how can he have something for me? How can he ever give me a drink? It leads us to the natural discussion. Look what she says. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. That would be the normal question. You don't have anything to draw water with. How are you going to give me something to drink? Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank it for himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And the Samaritan woman is going back over all the history of this well, which was some of the common ground that Jesus did have. In this case, there was some cultural common ground that Jacob, they would both know about him. They would know that he dug the well and provided this water. And she's starting to lead in. You can see the spirit of God working this situation because they're talking a little bit about spiritual things, Father Jacob. Now, notice how Jesus makes the jump from the physical to the spiritual, which is the hardest thing to do. Jesus answered in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. In other words, he says, listen, every day you come here and you come at the bad hour of the day, evidently because you don't associate with the other women in town, and every day you got to do this because you get thirsty every day. He says, wouldn't it be something if you could drink water and you'd never thirst again? And she's saying, man... Give me that water. Now notice what Jesus says. If everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that very phrase, welling up to eternal life, Jesus made a crucial jump. And it's a jump you need to learn to make. You need to learn to illustrate spiritual reality, spiritual truth, with down-to-earth physical things. 
In fact, in a lot of our churches today, a whole bunch of you have come to church and you've come to church for years and you know very little about it. You don't remember that much about what you learned. You know why? Because the minister taught you a lot of accurate spiritual truth, but they never connected with you physically. They never hooked on to you. Let me give you an illustration of that. Like in just about three weeks, I'm going to stand before about 500 basketball players. They're from all over the United States. It's a mixed racial group, a lot of black ball players, a lot of white ball players, a lot of Hispanic ball players, kids from all over the United States, from ghettos, all different social backgrounds. How do you connect with those guys? Well, first of all, when you say, would you please open up the Bible? We're going to study the book of John today. They would go, the book of John. So what do you do with that group? You know what I did last year when I spoke to them? I took a basketball. I opened up the Bible. I said, what do you guys come to do? I said, play basketball. I said, well, that's what we're going to do. So I walked out in the center of the auditorium with a basketball in my hand. I put about two six-foot-seven-inch guys at that end. I told them to stand up, grab hands together, and, and make a big bucket down at that end. I went to this end of the auditorium. I got two big six-foot-seven-inch guys down there. It wasn't hard to find tall guys like that. And had them make a bucket at that end. I knew that there were two teams in the camp. I asked them what their teams are. They're yelling and screaming at me about their teams. I said, now this is what we're going to do. I'm going to throw the basketball out. We're going to have a jump. And the idea is for you to get, I said, that basket's going to be for this team, and that basket's going to be for the other team. And I threw the ball out, and they just about tore the auditorium down. Just about tore it apart. They're whipping the ball all over the, this sanctuary, supposedly the sanctuary where we're meeting. Then after we did that for about five minutes, they're yelling and screaming, and they scored several different times. Then I said, okay, we're going to play again only this time, and I got in the center of the auditorium instead. As we start the game out, I said, I want all the guys that are the goal of there to sit down. I said, okay, let's play, and I threw the ball out. And so they're throwing the ball all over the auditorium. Suddenly one of these basketball players stands up and says, Wurtzen, this is stupid. I said, what do you mean it's stupid? You just had a really good time before. He says, it's stupid. There's no goal to this game. There's no goal to this game. You told the goal to sit down. Who wants to play a game without a goal? And then I looked at the audience and I said, you know, that's what I want to talk to you about the next five days. Life that doesn't have a goal doesn't make any sense. And it's no fun. And it's so important in life to have the right goal. And we're going to talk about how we can be sure that we live our life towards the right goal. Now, what did we do? We talked about a physical thing, basketball. Jesus used living water. And we made the transition from the physical to the spiritual. And I want you to start to think like that as a group of believers that want to reach people with Christ. Number one, you need to take initiative. Number two, you need to establish common ground with people. You need to talk about things that they're doing. Don't make unbelievers come a long way towards us. You know, there's a whole lot of churches that will sit together on Sunday morning, like we're gathered together here, and they'll leave church and they'll, and they'll see some unbelievers out there. They're getting ready to go out to their pool party, and they're getting their cords light ready, and believers will go by and go, those terrible, unbelieving people. Man, they never go to church. Well, of course they don't go to church. Why would you go to church if you don't know the Lord? Who would want to go to church? Would you go to a, a big celebration of like an anniversary celebration if you weren't part of the family that was celebrating the anniversary? No. Wouldn't want to do that. Rather than going home and saying, oh no, look at these terrible unbelievers, I want you to think of what can we do to connect with those people? You see, we have to think in terms of taking the initiative towards them and thinking about ways to connect with them. But you know what else? We also need to think of how far does an unbeliever have to come in order to hear the message about Jesus? How far does an unbeliever have to come? We need to work hard to help unbelievers not to have to come very far in order to hear about the person of Jesus. 
And so Jesus took the initiative, and the Samaritan woman, he made it easy for her to meet him. He made it easy for her to meet him. He took the initiative. He established common ground. He made the jump between the physical and the spiritual. The next thing he did is he kept things focused. I mean, he developed an honest conversation. Look what it says in the next verse. It says in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to the well. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. And she responded, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, I knew you didn't have any husband. You're a dirty, rotten, stinking adulterer. And I don't even know why I'm talking to such a, a perverse, crooked woman. In fact, I've been working politically to try to get you completely disenfranchised because I want to rid the land of Samaria and Judea of anyone that's ever committed adultery because you've broken the Ten Commandments. Is that what Jesus said to her? You ever stop and think of the way we come across to unbelievers? And sometimes we wonder why in the world unbelievers don't like us very well. Notice what Jesus said. One of the things I want you to, if you're going to reach out cross-culture to unbelievers, and if I'm going to do it, then we're going to have to learn to listen to the unbeliever and try to get in open, honest discussions with the unbeliever. Now, did Jesus condone the woman's adultery? Did he say, oh, I think it's great. You've had five husbands. Maybe you ought to try a six. I think it's a great alternative lifestyle. That's what Jesus said? No. Notice, Jesus responds in a brilliant way. He never condones her sin, but he tells her that he loves her. And he picks up something very important, which is the most important thing that an unbeliever can do in coming to Christ. It's the first step towards meeting the Savior. Look what it is. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The woman didn't lie to him. That was a very important step. The woman didn't lie to him, and Jesus said, The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now living, is not, living with is not even your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus never condoned her sin, but Jesus told her, You know what? I really appreciate the fact that you leveled with me, that you told me the truth. You know, one of the things that will change the way you relate to unbelievers, if you'll start to think, I want to try to be used of the Spirit of God to get into really honest, open discussions about what's really going on in the life of an unbeliever that I'm trying to reach. Like one of our church family that's waitressing, when she got down into open, honest communication, instead of the surface arguments that we get into, then the Spirit of God can begin to pull somebody towards the light, towards what is true. Do you understand the difference of reaching people on that kind of a level and just talking up here about our religious things? The next thing the woman does, in fact, as soon as you start to get into those open, honest talks, you know what people try to do? They try to divert you. And they'll try to get you to talk about the surface of religion. And what the woman does in the next statement is she tries to get Jesus to argue with her about which church you should go to, what building you should work in. And let's see how the Lord responds to that. Look at verse 19. As soon as the Lord touched her sin, then she jumps to another area. She says, sir... I can see that you're a prophet. She commends him. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, what would be the response to that? Well, as a Dallas Seminary student, I would probably say to the woman, don't you know that in Deuteronomy that there's, there's a central sanctuary, that you all are violating the law of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is in your Samaritan Pentateuch. I would have just hit her over the head with her own theology saying your own holy books prove that you shouldn't worship on Mount Gerizim. And then I would have said, I win, you lose, and guess what? I would have lost a convert. No way I would have reached her. I would have won my argument. I would have won theology but I would have missed her. 
Look at the way Jesus responds to her. It's just incredible, the skill with which he does it. Look at verse 21. Believe me, ma'am, there's a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this Mount Gerizim, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Isn't that an incredible way to deal with this issue? See, you want to argue with the Jew and the Samaritan about where we should worship. And my people burn down your place of worship. Jesus shoots right by all that and says, Woman, don't you realize there's going to come a day when the argument's not going to be whether you're in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim. But he also doesn't nullify scripture. He goes on and says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. But we worship what we do know for salvation from the Jews. So Jesus is very strong, though he's open. He's very strong on biblical accuracy. Because the Old Testament made it really plain that all the nations would be blessed. That all the ethnic groups would be blessed in the seed of Abraham through Isaac, the Jew. But notice what he goes on to say. He doesn't leave it there. He says, yet a time is coming. And now has come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. What a deep level of conversation. Jesus doesn't just argue with her religiously about where we should worship. He says, you know, we need to talk about what's really going on inside. And the ultimate God of the universe is a spirit. The issue is not the place where you worship. The issue is how you worship. Do you do it from your heart? Do you do it from the inside? Do you do it with truth? Does it really conform to the reality of your life? And it's a much bigger issue than just whether or not you're Jewish or you're Samaritan. Jesus cuts through all this cultural, ethnic barrier and says, listen, there's only one God, the Father, and he is really there. And he said to this woman, he says, have you connected with him in your own spirit? Have you found him? Are you, are you, are you really able to be close to him? And then she says, are you doing it with truth, with real honesty? And are you worshiping the true God? All that's involved. I mean, we could just go on forever with the deep implication of the reality of what Jesus was saying. And the woman then says something very important. I want you to see how Jesus slowly but surely is bringing her towards a very important point. She says this in her next line. She said, sir, you know, when the Messiah comes, the Samaritans believe the Messiah was coming. Because in their Samaritan Pentateuch, Moses promised that the Messiah would come. And the woman thinks she's just going to get away from the argument. She says, when the Messiah comes, he'll solve our argument. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us how we should worship God and where we should do it and how we should do it. And Jesus looks at her and says, ma'am, I'm he. I'm he. I really believe Jesus is here. And I believe Jesus is in my life. And I think Jesus is in your life. I think those of you that have responded to him, I think you've met the ultimate answer, man, the one that can give living water. And if you drink of him, you'll never, never run out. You see, as I've grown older, one of the reasons I want people to come to know Jesus is like, you know, as I see my boys, I say, Lord, boy, am I glad I'm through all that stuff. And then the Lord will quietly say, Dave, do you remember when you were 18? Remember when you met Mary? Remember the incredible way that I brought Mary from Moody Bible Institute? Even before that, remember the way that I trained her with Art and Mary and, and how I, I, I just made her have just the right background for you? And I brought you as a New York Yankee together with this Nebraskan, and I got you together up there. And, and even though you were a thousand miles apart, I called your relationship to work, and I said, yes, Lord, I remember. He says, trust me with your boys. Trust me that I'll work in their life. Give them guidance. Give them prayer. But most of all, Thank, thank me that I'm in their life and encourage them to look to me and believe that that miracle 
And I can say, but Lord, as Mary and I have lived these years together, man, there's been so many ups and downs, and I, I can be scared my own kids are going to have to go through those, all those ups and downs with losing precious relatives and death and having tragic sickness invade, and you never know what's going to happen. And Jesus will say, listen, aren't, aren't I still there for you? Don't you get up in the morning and have a fountain that's still going in your life? When you get up to teach God's word, doesn't something still happen? It's worth it to have the living water in your life. Do you understand, brother, this is what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about churchianity. I'm talking about living water that sustains your life. And that I find it sustaining your life. What I want you to start to do is to have a great burden because he is sustaining your life to help other people to find the one that can sustain their life. And his name is Jesus. It'll change the way you talk to people about your Jesus. It'll change the way you argue about spiritual things. Because you'll start to become part of this flow of redemption. Some of you are sitting there going, David, I really want to witness and I want to reach out to the woman of Samaria, but it's really hard for me to do that. And it's hard for me to care. You know why it's hard for you to care? Because you're not connected closely with unbelievers. This week, I want you not necessarily to talk to unbelievers. I want you to listen to unbelievers. I want you to try to spend some time this week just listening to a woman of Samaria or just trying to develop a relationship where you'll be able to lead to a place where they'll talk. You see, if you don't know any homosexuals, then it's really easy to hate them like crazy. And it's really easy for you to generalize what they're like. And it's really easy for you to want to kill them all. We wonder why there's so much antagonism. But you know what? If you have a homosexual that's your friend, if you listen to him talk, the Lord will give you a burden. Well, it changes the ballgame. If you start working with a guy who is jumping from one girl to the next and he's, he's totally immoral and you listen to him, you get underneath that ground and you find out that when he used to be in a church youth group when he was about 13 and the pastor's daughter that was much older than him that was rebelling against her daddy when he was just a little boy got him involved in sexuality and his whole vision of biblical Christianity just crashed. And he's trying to work through all of that misunderstanding. He doesn't know who Jesus is. And you get someone to really talk to you openly and honestly. And you know what? People don't do that until you establish what Jesus did. This initiative, this common ground, this movement from the physical to the spiritual, staying focused on it's meeting the Savior. It's really meeting the person of Jesus. It's about Jesus, not about my culture. It's not the way you dress. It's not whether you wear belt buckles and jeans or whether you wear three-piece suits. It's none of that. It's about Jesus. And we need to do whatever it's going to take within this cultural group. And that can change. The Apostle Paul would move from being Jewish to being Gentile to being Roman. He would do whatever it took because he wanted everyone to be able to meet Jesus. That's what I covet for you today. And I close with this. You say, well, Dave, you talked to us about two and a half billion people that can never be reached. Unless someone goes. You know what? When I hear that figure, it does absolutely nothing to me. I can't identify with two and a half billion people. Can you? The other way I react with it, it's impossible. It can never, never happen. We can't reach two and a half billion people. I can't even imagine two and a half billion people. But I want you to stop and think like this. Remember I told you there's 11,000 people groups that unless someone goes from a people group now like us that have the gospel, that has Jesus now and reaches across a barrier, they're not going to be reached. Let me break it down for you. In the United States of America and Canada, if only one believer 
for every 40,000 believers went to one of those 11,000 groups and prayed to establish a church there and to reach them, to learn the language, learn the culture, and establish that group. If only one believer for every 40 to 50,000 believers in North America and Canada would go. Now, does that sound impossible? One cross-cultural foreign missionary doing the difficult task of trying to break through those opposites repel out of 40,000 believers, and the job is done. We have the communication tools. We have the abilities. We can do it. I want you to think about becoming part of praying for reaching those 11,000 groups. A lot of them are in the Islamic world. A lot of them are in the bamboo curtain world. And yet they can be reached, and it could happen just in the next few years. But you know where it begins? It begins when we start becoming alert to the woman of Samaria that's around us. People that are right around us. So with someone we don't ever see. Jesus didn't have people blindness. He saw the woman of Samaria. He saw the people that were around him. And he connected. He took the initiative. He established common ground. He moved them from a physical discussion to a spiritual discussion. He stayed focused on the big issue, which was him. And he led them to a personal confrontation, not with religion, but with a living Messiah, Jesus Christ. 